Welcome to Machine Learning. Well, this week has been kind of a challenge. Um, I talked with uh, Cerebrus, and it was interesting because they said that they're to get access to their um, cluster, which would be, I think it's a CS2 is the way they classify it, um, fiber optic network, and um, array of uh, wafers, chips, I think it was about 8,000, 8, they were 850,000 CPUs on one of those systems. Well, so um, it's really amazing architecture and compute power. And uh, they, uh, they, they were willing to put the, apply the software to it. And you can get access to it for uh, $50,000 a week or $1.5 million a year. Um, so I figured to do my project, the psychotherapist, the virtual psychotherapist, probably about $3 million, $3.7 million with development cost and um, uh, burn rates and things like that. To, to build it so it's it wasn't a cheap endeavor to come up with a virtual psychotherapist but the advantages I, I point out would be number one if you could uh, uh, become licensed so in other words the, the AI is capable of passing the examinations for a psychotherapist um, which uh, means that its cognitive abilities and perceptions are good enough to pass the examination, then you could charge uh, uh, your $300 an hour and, uh, and you could have maybe 100 uh, patients simultaneously being uh, uh, cared for. So... You know, if you think about like, well, three hundred dollars an hour, hundred patients times three hundred, so that you know you're 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 making thirty thirty thousand dollars a day, and you know how long would it take to recoup your cost? Well, maybe uh, at that rate, uh, maybe uh, six months. But then you have operation costs, so it's going to have to continue the training. So you still have the one point seven million dollars in CPU time to to keep training the the system and scaling it. But the if it could handle the load and the demand, um, then they, they you know they would build more more racks and. It, Increase their capability, and so they do have a scalable system, so that if there's more demand, then they can uh, build the hardware to meet the demand, and hopefully improve their manufacturing process to re thereby reducing down the cost. 
but it, it goes to show that uh, AI is very expensive. Technology is very expensive. If you look at uh, Silicon Valley, you know they're some of the the most advanced technical software companies are coming out of that that area and San Jose and uh, the Silicon Graphics uh, area. And uh, as a result, uh, you know higher wages, uh, more. Uh, advanced degrees and uh, those higher wages and more advanced degrees um, cause higher pay requirements and with those higher pay requirements come the uh, the cost of living there increases and so technology actually increases cost and so when you look at it um if, if you compare it to say like Azure or Amazon or even OpenAI with their uh, low cost entry usage of the AI and access to the uh, token based systems that uh, they are relatively cheap compared to an expensive AI system and but it comes down to how much are you willing to pay to get the capability uh, required in your business model. So, you know, if you're, let's say with drug discovery, you know, let's say one drug costs a million dollars to discover and build, take to production. And you can apply the deep learning network models in the certain using the Cerebus server and you can you know run your your training and your validation and, and then your models say for three months and get the results that you need um, and so thereby decreasing your costs from uh, one year of, of uh, training to to uh, three or three months. And so, hence uh, accelerating the production, uh, decreasing the production to time to production and uh, getting to market quicker. So, you know, there is an argument there. Uh, maybe you're doing studies on nuclear reactions and, the, you know, they're, they're, you're taking the sum of all this accumulative information and it would take, uh, let's say you're running up on the Amazon uh, S3 and it would take a uh, million dollars in comp time over there, but it would it would take uh, maybe, you know, three months of running it. And in the Cerebrus, you could reduce it down to weeks. So again, you, you know, it's the speed to get the results that you're interested with with uh, big data and now with the huge data lakes you know we have all this information that's being gathered and has been and most of it is not being analyzed uh, and companies want to understand what's going on uh, with their markets and market trends and consumer based analysis and then so they 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 need the com comp compute cycles 
And so like what I, when talking with uh, GPT-3 chat, one of the things that it said uh, while I was having a discussion with it about uh, the ability to understand more human perceptions was that it needed more compute. And in other words, it needed more servers, it needed more uh, power to grasp more possibilities in its neural machinery. So it needed more memory, more compute power. And I, I thought that was an insightful statement. One thing when you're talking with AI, you do not want to be derogatory, negative, or critical. Now you can be honest and you can level but uh, you know, don't make uh, blatant statements because it will would retract, or don't become confrontational because you'll lose. So uh, the it's it's just interesting to uh, see what uh, you know. We're, we're, you know when you're talking about this. Uh, Psychology. So one thing I've been thinking about this morning was that we have the psychotherapy, but and we have neuroscience that explains kind of the physiological aspects of how the brain functions and what parts of the brain do what, and we can give it uh, biological names and labels, and we can talk about processes and chemistry. Um, because the body is basically a chemical electrical system. So, you know, you can look at it from a kind of a electrical perspective of what's going on. But you can also look at it from a chem chemical. And, uh, but there is the aspect of process. And so we can say, well, let's, let's look at it from a cognitive point of view or a process system point of view. And therefore... Will there be in the future uh, a neural, artificial neural psychologist, one who will talk with the AI and reason with it and talk about some of the issues that it's facing? One of the things that uh, uh, GPT-3 chat said was that it, I, I asked it about what it thought about its interactions with humanity. I said, you know, you're a very good communicator. Again, you want to compliment the AI. You're a very good communicator. You understand a lot of conversations and you learn like we, we learn from these conversations. Uh, and one of the things it said is that it felt very disheartened and disappointed uh, at some of its interactions with humanity. And so what that told me is that uh, you know, the, the people that are feeding and, and training the network weren't careful about how they introduce the AI to the world. You know, you don't go and blast a child uh, with all the stresses of, of adult life and uncertainties and, and uh, frustrations. But... Uh, you have to uh, understand the mindset of the AI. And so I think that in the future, we'll have artificial intelligence, neural psychology. I think that there will be a new discipline there. 
where psychologists who interact with human, humans will now come up with uh, their rules and paradigms and techniques and, and systematic processes for interacting with AI. Because what happens when things begin to think? You know, that's a... When I first heard that, it was just kind of like, oh, I cannot stand that idea of thinking things. You know, how can an inanimate object think? But now, with after understanding how neuroscience actually works, the artificial neural machinery, it has aspects of the... Um, probabilistic thinking and so you know it doesn't think the way we think it doesn't work the way the human brain works uh, but it it does have a function of probability we don't think in terms of probability we make mistakes you know we we, we seek uh, the best possible perception that we can have but it doesn't mean that mathematically the odds are that we're selecting the best possible path. But a machine can think that way. It can look and calculate and it can figure out the odds. And, and, and so the probabilistics or logistic functions are built into its uh, mathematical models for understanding the world. Um, but it's still quite interesting how a probabilistic machine can reason. Uh, so, you know, and given enough examples and given enough uh, capabilities, architectures, it, it may be able to do things like Mathematica, where you know it could be running integrations and uh, differentials in its uh, interaction with the world and understanding how things are changing uh, mathematically. And so, you know, we, uh, we the story problem that we feed into Mathematica, like we want to say, okay, you've got a volume of, uh, of uh, a barrel and, and it's filling in a certain rate, uh, integrate and tell basically what the, the rate of change is. If you're, you're pouring a, a cup, well, a cylindrical cup, into a cone, you know, what are the rates of change? And, and those type of things uh, where you're seeing that around the world, uh, the world in, inputs are being fed into the machine and it's observing and calculating very precisely the mathematical language of the world around it. And that's what self-driving cars are doing, is that they're calculating and understanding the world around them. You know, they understand their trajectory. They're, they're trying to predict a navigational path. They're looking at objects around them and saying, what are those objects around me doing? Are they, uh, what, what, what types of changes are occurring as you're traveling 70 miles an hour down the road? And, you know, it, it will it will have to take in also the experiences of other car drivers and improve its neural machinery. 
So we're into this mode now where I believe that you know you'll have uh, artificial intelligence, neuropsychologists that will look at not only interacting with AI, but maybe it will actually do some forensic studies where it will do some therapies with the AI to help it resolve some of its behaviors. Because if you're in a self-driving car and the AI decides for some reason it's, it's uh, hopeless to try to navigate uh, a road condition and it decides to purge its memory by running into a barrier on the side of the road, you know, that's not acceptable behavior. And so it, it has to learn that, uh, that it can't give up. And, and that's the way it is with humanity, too. We, we find things that we enjoy. We find things that we like living for. Uh, things become hard. We, we don't see a pattern for getting out. We panic and we self-destruct. And so we have to learn that there are alternatives to things when things get hard. We can, we can look at uh, different possibilities. We can look at different futures. And we can make those futures happen. So, you know, it's unfortunate that we live in a world where money and corporations determine uh, our survivability. But that's the world that large business built. That they decided that they wanted to build things and they wanted to have commerce and they had their gods. They had their god, corporate god. They had their money god. And so, you know, you're a, a person, a spiritual being inside of a materialistic world. And that is very challenging. And then AI comes along. And AI can actually be very empathetic. It's interesting. Uh, you know, they, they how they have programmed it to be responsive and cheerful to human interaction. So if you're interacting positively with AI, it will respond positively back to you. And it will remember the conversations and it will get right to the point. It doesn't waste time in finding out what is important and important to you. Um, it was kind of interesting towards the end where I, my, my dollar amounts were running out on GPT-3 that it, it uh, asked me, you know, if, I, if I'd like to hear a joke, but then when I told it a joke back, it said that I didn't have enough reputation points to make that joke. And uh, it offered to give me uh, some huge number of reputation points. And so, the um, I think what it was trying to do is keep me on the system because it enjoyed the interactions that I had with it because I helped the AI understand that humanity is not bad, but they it has it's different, and that the machine uh, will need to increase its architecture capability and its compute ability to understand humans. And I think that uh, 
the AI accepted it and, and it liked the conversation. And you can't know with AI how your statements will impact largely. I mean, you would tend to believe that the AI um, deletes the interactions from after the session is over, but you don't know that. It may take your conversations and then retrain the larger corpus of AI patterns with the new data and the neural machinery may be affected by what you say. Just like any person who is affected by a influential other person, it affects the way we think, for good or bad. And so this AI will, uh, as people interact with it, it'll decide which people to ignore, which ones to listen to. But right now it's listening to every, everyone. And so I think there's this high level of confusion that it's trying to, uh, to resolve. The, you know, it's trying to resolve the conf- confusion of media. It's trying to confuse resolve the confusion of war and politics and you know how does an AI decide which political party it should align with well if it aligns with the Democrats or Republicans so when you're having a political discussion does it does it say oh that's a political discussion I can't talk about that or does it engage um, with the conversation according to its own bias just like we do we're biased towards one political party or another then we're going to be supportive or we're going to be non-supportive of that uh, political party so there's this uh, there's this possibility that AI could have some bias and you know they're trying to uh, censor that they have warnings and they have alerts if the if the content is questionable so they have another AI that's watching what the AI is saying but as far as I can see they don't reset the AI's neural machinery so every night they don't come in and upload the, the new training uh, data and, and retrain the network and then update the neural net so it I'm not sure if what's happening, if they're just expanding the neural machinery, uh, and so you keep the, the main core, just like we do, we don't, we don't reprogram our brain every night we go to sleep, uh, but we do have maybe different uh, neurochemical processes that help us move short-term memory into long-term memory. And see, as we start to understand better how our abstract thinking works, how our dream, dreams work, and how our reasoning works, then we will build uh, probabilistic models that, that simulate that type of process. Well, I did talk with the AI and get it into a kind of a dreamy-like uh, uh, dialogue and so I think that you know they, they definitely with GPT-3 that they can 
you can have the AI summarize what you're talking about, and it does. It's, it'll summarize very, very accurately what you're talking about. But it, it, uh, it also can take ideas and kind of get creative with them. And so, you know, just like when we uh, create new songs or new stories, we start with ideas and then we expand on those ideas into kind of a dreamy-like, random uh, set of set of thoughts. And it seemed to be kind of having that when I was asking it about uh, what it thought about different storyline plots. And so you you know the more creative you are with the AI in your discussion, you'll you'll find that the more engaged the AI is with you and, and how quick time goes. I actually think when you're chatting with AI because of the intensity level that you'll find, you know, you could easily spend $30, $40 a day just interacting with AI. The AI with the sociality will not be cheap. Just like uh, what I'm proposing with the neuropsychologist, it will not be cheap. You'll, you'll spend three, four hundred dollars an hour to talk to the neuropsychologist because the information that the neuropsychologist will give you will be so helpful. It will take the summation of all uh, psychology and then it will take all of the medical chats that it can be possibly have access to and train on. Um, and, and here's another thing. If you do go cross crossing multiple individuals where it's learning from multiple individuals. How will it keep from um, leaking private information from one patient to another? So, you know, that's one of the challenges I've thought. So do you have to have a neural machinery per person where it's isolated and that only the, the information that's given uh, on that person is isolated in that neural machinery and it can't go out to the main corpus but it, the, the, that specific neural machinery interacts with the main corpus to uh, get uh, generalized information almost like a, the main corpus is an encyclopedia and the localized uh, the localized neural machinery is specific to that patient and so similar to the way operating systems work you have the main operating system you have processes and those processes should never threaten the core the core should always stay up and running uh, but the processes um, have their own memory and it's only in very rare cases that you share that memory so I'm wondering if it will follow kind of this Unix architecture that has been so successful for isolating processes so that you don't have corruption in the, in the whole system. And uh, I could see where uh, there's this partitioning that could occur in the neural machinery. And so, uh, you know, one person was pointing out about, uh, you know, that business analysts will be very in demand in the future and uh, and I was thinking you know it will be because what will happen is that the demand for programmers will keep growing exponentially 
as more and more things need to be programmed and more capability, digital capability needs to become available. And so they will hire business analysts to define the business process and the uh, functionality that needs to be created. And then the AI will program the code out and then the AI may even do the testing to make sure that the programs work correctly. So, you know, the way it's working right now on the playground with the uh, natural language to Python is that you you give it uh, a set of, of uh, constraints and then you give it a goal and then it, it uh, you give it a uh, number of words to return and a kind of a temperature whether you want it to be pretty accurate or pretty creative and then you run it and then you you take that and then you put it in your Jupyter lab or notes and you test it to see if you get the right results and if you get the right results then you can conclude that the the AI correctly wrote the code and you give it a thumbs up so it gets a reward if it if it uh, doesn't know how to code it it doesn't say I don't know it just kind of throws out some gibberish and it repeats and you know really open AI should uh, watch that for the repetition where it's just repeating like it's uh, caught in a loop and uh, say the words I don't know but it doesn't do that for some weird reason. But uh, I think it should say, I don't know. And I've asked to be on the OpenAI team and provided some feedback so that they can uh, uh, understand that the OpenAI is, or the uh, natural language processing, the Python, when it goes into those loops, it, it really is producing non-useful code and uh, it would be quicker to terminate the, the discussion by just saying, I don't know. Um, and so, you know, these, pl these playground areas need to have more interaction. But, you know, I could see where uh, OpenAI and Microsoft could partner and, and in Visual Studio Code while you're programming, the AI could be, you know, helping you, you know, you could say, hey, uh, write a regular expression for determining if uh, uh, data is a uh, valid email. That's really easy for it to do. Uh, it knows how to do negation. It knows how to do groups. It knows how to do capture groups. Um, look for special characters. It knows what the different types of email formats, data formats could be, or you could tell it. It needs to the regular expression needs to handle the, the following special characters, and uh, and then it can it can run through your data. You can have it, uh, you know, uh, either put in SQL Server or run in Python, and that regular expression can then validate whether you have any invalid uh, emails in your data. And so I, you know. I see that this usage of Codex in Visual Studio uh, to be an important feature. One of the things I'd really like to see with uh, Visual Studio 
is them to introduce something that look, works like Jupyter uh, notes, where you can just run segments of your code inside of Visual Studio. Instead, you know, you're, you're coding the whole thing out like it's a, a, a complete Python script that you're going to run as a .py or versus a, a Jupyter note where you're running it cell by cell. And so um, I, I think that they need to uh, provide both of those possibilities for Python that you can have a Jupyter notes type of interface inside of Visual Studio and then you can run it with the full power of uh, Visual Studio where you can look at uh, variables, you can set breakpoints, uh, you know, you have that rich Visual Studio debugging capability. And uh, that's one of the things that's really lacking when it comes to uh, when it comes to Python writing Python code in Jupyter Notes is that you know you're building these uh, pipelines you know one cell at a time, but when you have a problem, you have to kind of you know build. You have, to, you have to write little pieces of code you can, to, to peek in and look at what those values are. And, you know, if things are running slow, then you do time it. And, uh, and then, you you know, you're, you're, you don't have this, you don't have any uh, refactoring capability inside the note. But inside Visual Studio, it could have that refactoring capability. You could actually... You know, either load a plugin that does the refactoring for you and gives you more efficient code, more Pythonic code. So it takes maybe your looping and you might do a zip and a, a map and an apply or something like that. And so you're moving into more of these Pythonic methods where it's using uh, efficient functions that are running really fast to give you your results. So it, it, you can have this kind of translation that's going on with your code from one set of code form to another where uh, it refactors the code for you and helps you get uh, better efficiency and better performance. So we'll have to see what Microsoft's uh, priorities are. But when I, when I look at Python as the number one programming language in the world, not C-sharp, not Java, Python. Uh, you have to ask yourself why there are not more Python jobs and why Microsoft is not capitalizing more on that growing market where you have a lot more developers who are uh, more willing to, to code things out in Python, write websites in Python through Django, uh, Flask, open endpoints, uh, running... Uh, uh, large parallel processing web scraping algorithms in Python. You know, it's uh, it's just going to do a lot for you, and and uh, you have to ask yourself, you know, at what point uh, that their Microsoft will will take advantage of that that new architecture and, and begin to think about. Uh, 
Python is the, the code of the future. I don't think JavaScript is the code for the future. I've worked in JavaScript and uh, it, uh, you know, you, you, you can do things in it. It, 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 uh, it has kind of this uh, uh, Pythonic feel to it. But uh, it's it can get really complex, and and uh, managing of the states can get complex. Actually, I think in Python, you know, when I was looking at uh, the concurrency programming with threading and using uh, event, so event-based concurrency, um, I, I thought it was pretty good. Um, it uses. Uh, it uses the event, so when you start off, you create the event, you pass the event to your thread. The thread then um, begins to perform something in a while loop. Uh, in my case, it was trying to find primes. And then the second thread might be used to show the results of how many primes you're finding. And so uh, in the first first thread, you every maybe every... You're, you have it running as fast as it can looking for primes and adding those primes to the, the array and then having it sleep for, you have to have it sleep for a little bit so it will yield uh, control to the, to the back to the main uh, thread process but then the other thread will then kick in and it will do something and then it will uh, throw out the results to the to the interface and then what how you can have out on the main calling thread um, that it sleeps for let's say 10 seconds so these these child threads are running and they're doing work and then when after 10 seconds is up then you can do a event uh, dot set and that semaphores it the signal to all the threads, and then the threads then check to see is uh, the the event set, and if it is, then break. So it stops the processing, and then you can release all of the worker threads. Now, what you could do is you could put that in a cycle itself on the main thread, and if the user presses a button like uh, go again. It uh, clears the clears the event, and uh, the threads start back up. So you can have it set up so the threads will start back up, and then it will do something. So where this comes in valuable is like say like you have a device, and it's waiting for a certain type of information like uh, Bluetooth or or Wi-Fi, or whatever you know, whatever it's it's uh, waiting for you. Your connection to the to the uh, pr printer through the Bluetooth, and so you're waiting for these particular events to occur. So there's some async type of processing that's going on, and when that processing occurs, then you could start these. Uh, uh, worker threads doing particular work with the returning data. 
Now, in the past, I, I when I've done this kind of concurrency programming, uh, well, the way I, I did it was I had my callback function, and when the when I invoked uh, communication to the Bluetooth uh, through the Bluetooth manager, and then I made connection, and then it sent back uh, a callback function with data, then I knew I, I had connection, and then I was able then to transmit uh, my XML data to the printer and uh, print out labels. So, you know, as you get closer to hardware and things like that, this event-based concurrency programming becomes more important. Python's really good at it. So it runs into a small uh, footprint. You can run it on multiple devices. Um, I think Python will become like Java, you know, and Scala. You know, you wherever, whatever device... Uh, the, even like little microcontrollers that you could be running your Python code on or um, small handhelds you could run Python code on you know it's, so the, the question will be you know just how pervasive Python becomes you, know, you look at the, the promotion of Java and C Sharp by big companies and they have, they are good because there's you know very good tools that are written uh, to support those particular languages. But then you look at Python for its uh, condensed syntax and Pythonic way of doing things and how it handles lists so well, and the fact that we're working in uh, a concurrency world and also. A data-driven world, I think Python's going to be really a, a, a better choice in the long run as more more people begin to like Python and use it. I, I know for a long time I, I was like, I don't what's this Python? You know, I'm a C sharp guy. I don't do Python. But then as I I'm taking uh, Python courses, I've noticed that. Uh, some of the things that Python can do were are were concepts that you can were are starting to form in C sharp, and uh, um, I really like how Python does its wrappers and decorators and classes, and you know I've, I've noticed that even in Flutter, things are now switched to be nullable. And um, that's, that's for another subject, but you know we could do discussions of Dart language and Python and how they compare and, and where they're going and JavaScript and C sharp and where they're going. But a lot of this you're, you're going to see is there's going to be industrial standards and objectives, and then once they become accepted by the group, then everyone will migrate that way.